Uh, well, thank you so much for uh, inviting me here tonight. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here, a pleasure to be with you. Uh, many of you will know my brother-in-law, Phil, uh, as has already been mentioned, and got good things to say about Crumlin EPC, and I know it's been a real blessing to them. So thank you for having me. Uh, but before we open God's words, let's take some time uh, to pray. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity tonight to come and gather around your words. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through it. Uh, Lord, that we would have hearts that are open and receptive and softened to the challenge of your words. That we would have ears that are receptive. Uh, Lord, that we would go from this building this evening, uh, obedience to you. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, some of you might have seen the film uh, Matilda. It's based on the book by Roald Dahl, the same name. And in the film, uh, it, it's about a little girl called Matilda who is very extraordinary. She's got special abilities. She's incredibly intelligent. But she comes from a very ordinary family. Her father, Harry Wormwood, is a shifty and dishonest car salesman. And so one day, Harry brings his daughter Matilda and his son Michael into his place of work, into his junkyard. And he shows them this total wreck of a car that he's just paid $100 for. It's got 120,000 miles on it. The transmission or the gearbox has totally gone. It's rusting and the bumpers are falling off. But instead of spending time and money and effort in doing up the car, what Harry does instead is he does a very quick and easy DIY job. And so he glues on the bumper with super glue uh, instead of welding it on. He puts sawdust into the transmission, the gearbox, to make sure that it runs more quietly. And probably the worst thing of all, he uses a power drill to run the mileage back on the car so that it's lower. It gets a new lick of paint, and it's ready to be sold. Now, the unfortunate person in this scenario, the sucker, is the person who's going to buy that car. Because it might look really good on the outside, but on the inside, it's a total piece of junk. It's not worth anywhere near the price that that person's going to pay for it. And when you're buying a car, no matter how into your cars you are, you might really focus on the outside. But the reality is that no matter how good a car looks on the outside, it's what is on the inside that counts. Because if it's a total wreck on the inside and it breaks down every five minutes, then it's not fit for purpose. And this is a picture of what we see in Matthew's Gospel tonight. Jesus directly rebukes the falseness of these Jewish religious leaders, these Pharisees, because they appear to be upright and righteous on the outside, but on the inside their hearts were totally far from God. And what we see in this passage tonight is, I think, three things. Firstly, we need to follow God rather than human traditions. Secondly, we need a new heart, not just uh, external changes or behavior modification. And then finally, we'll consider, well, if what we need is a new heart, then how do we go about getting this new heart? But firstly, we need to follow God, not human traditions. 
Now imagine the scene for a moment. We have uh, Jesus is with his disciples and he's approached by this group of Pharisees from Jerusalem. Now up until this point, Jesus had been preaching and teaching and doing his miracles in the province of Galilee. And the elite religious teachers down in Jerusalem, well they looked upon Galilee as a bit of a, a backwater. They looked down their noses at people from Galilee. But Jesus had caused such a massive sensation that as we read in verse 1, there was a delegation that was sent out from Jerusalem. And, And this group of Pharisees wanted to put Jesus to the test. They wanted to see if his teaching was was up to their standards, to see if it was orthodox enough for them. But the Lord Jesus clearly wasn't measuring up to their expectations because they come to him with a challenge and we read in verse 2 it says why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders they don't wash their hands before they eat now this isn't the first time that Jesus has gotten into trouble with the religious authorities back in chapter 12 in Matthew's gospel we read that he had healed a man on the sabbath which was offensive to them because it it broke uh, their expectations of of what was done on the Sabbath. And he had also gotten into trouble for mixing with the wrong sorts of people. Tax collectors, sinners, the, the social and religious outcasts of their day. But why are the Pharisees so annoyed and so offended here? Is it just the case that they're, they're really concerned about the personal hygiene of the disciples? They want them to wash their hands before they eat. Well, no, there's, a, there's something more going on here. The real reason that the Pharisees were so upset was because Jesus' disciples were breaking the elders' traditions. In the Old Testament, there were laws against ritual uncleanliness. And so, for example, in Exodus chapter 30, we read that priests were instructed to wash their hands before they they give a burnt offering or a food offering to the Lord. But over the course of many, many years, these laws have been added to by the Pharisees and the religious teachers. And so, for example, one of the traditions was called the Yadaim. And the Yadaim specified how much water was to be used whenever a Jewish man was washing before he ate. And not only that, but it became a religious requirement that all Jewish men washed their hands before they had any meal, not just uh, before food offerings were given. And so the Pharisees, the commentators tell us, uh, they viewed these writings as being almost as authoritative as Scripture itself. So how does Jesus respond to the challenge of the Pharisees? Well, he responds, as the Lord Jesus very often did, with a question of his own. He says, why do you break God's commands for the sake of your traditions? And he points out that the Pharisees have gotten their priorities completely and utterly upside down. Because what they've done is they've added even more traditions on top of God's law, which weren't actually given by God. But not only that, they were, they were completely disobeying God's law in order to follow their own traditions. Jesus says in verse 5, You say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not 
to honour their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Do we see what's going on here? Jesus is saying, well, God's law says, honour your father and mother. Now, these, these were the Pharisees. They were the creme de la creme of the religious teachers of their day. And so they would have known full well that one of the Ten Commandments was, honour your father and mother. This was really basic stuff for them. And yet Jesus says, you break this law for the sake of following your own traditions. Because there were people, clearly, who wanted to honour their father and mother, perhaps by setting aside a financial gift or some other uh, means of help. And they were bringing this to their, their parents, and yet the Pharisees took it upon themselves to say, no, no, that gift is not for your, your parents. That is to be devoted to God. In effect, they broke God's law, and they made up their own law. And so whilst they made a show of devotion to God on the outside, in reality they prioritised their own religious tradition instead of God's will. And the great irony here is that the Pharisees thought of themselves as being totally devoted to God. They thought that if anyone was following God's law and being righteous, it was them. But Jesus responds to them by quoting the prophet Isaiah, and he says in verse 8, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You might listen uh, to the radio. I enjoy listening to the radio in the morning, usually my commute on the way into work. Uh, I listen to Radio 4, Radio Ulster, uh, LBC is a particular favourite at the minute. And with all of these stations, there's a certain type of programme that you'll often hear. It's the phone-in show and it's just an opportunity for people to, to call in and vent about something that they're annoyed about, usually. But on these shows, there's a phrase that pops up fairly often. And in fact, you can almost guarantee that at some point, this phrase will be mentioned. Somebody will call in and say something like, well, the Minister for Health promised that we would have shorter waiting lists by now. Or the, the Prime Minister promised that we would have more budgets, more, more funds for policing. But, they say, but nothing's really changed. And it turns out they were just paying lip service. They were just paying lip service. They said one thing with their mouths, but their actions didn't correspond with what they said. And if you listen to these shows, you'll know that that is not a compliment. When somebody says that that person is paying lip service, what they're saying is they've got no integrity. They're total hypocrites. This is, in effect, how Jesus is describing the Pharisees. They're hypocrites. They're people who show devotion outwardly, but inwardly their hearts are set against God. And the problem really was that they were trying to make themselves right before God by keeping these traditions, by just doing their religious duties. Now, I think it's very easy for us to point the finger at the Pharisees and say, well, the Pharisees clearly got it wrong because they were trying to make themselves clean or righteous before God by following all of these religious traditions. But we're not like that. We're Bible-believing Christians. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so we're not like that. 
But I wonder tonight if there's any danger that we ourselves can behave like Pharisees. And I say that to myself as well. And I think the answer is a resounding yes. There is a great danger. Because there can be things that we do that show that we're actually behaving more like Pharisees. We're following human traditions rather than God himself. And when we do that, we're really just trying to make ourselves presentable before God through our own efforts. Let me just take one example. It's a great thing, a wonderful thing to read the Bible every day. In fact, it's a a necessary thing. If we want to grow in our walk with the Lord and in our maturity as Christians, we need to be reading and praying very regularly. But it isn't long before this good thing can become a rule, an obligation that we feel that we must keep. And as it becomes a rule, then instead of reading the Bible to see and to hear what God has to say to us, to follow him more closely, instead we can read it just to tick a box, to tick off that that chapter or whatever it is that we need to read that day. And when we do that, when we make it a rule, We end up then feeling good or that God is pleased with us whenever we've done it. And conversely then, bad or or God is displeased with us if we don't do it. It becomes about our performance. And if that is the way that we're relating to God, then we're behaving more like Pharisees. Because as Christians, the way that we relate to God has nothing whatsoever to do with what we don't do or what we do do. No, it's based on what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so even even a good thing, a great thing, like reading the Bible, when it becomes a rule, well then we're trying to make ourselves right with God through our works. For some of us, maybe we're on the opposite end of of the spectrum. Maybe it's not legalism, but, but maybe it might be that our devotion to God has just grown completely cold. And we can pay lip service to God because we can turn up to the prayer meeting or the Sunday service or the Bible study and we can say all the right things. We can pray the long prayers with the right sounding language, but on the inside, our hearts are far from God. I wonder if you can relate to this. I know I definitely can. We worry more about what other people think about us than we actually do about what God thinks of us. So we may not have laws about washing our hands before we eat, but we can still be Pharisees underneath it all. Secondly, then, we need a new heart. We need a new heart, not just behavior modification. So we find here that that Jesus criticizes the Pharisees because they break God's law in order to follow their own traditions. But then he turns his attention to the second part of the Pharisees' question. Why do your disciples not wash their hands? You see, the the assumption that the Pharisees had was that the things that make us unclean are the things that come from the outside and go into our bodies. But Jesus goes on to say in verse 10, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. And again in verse 17 he says, Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, 
theft, false testimony, slander. Now, it'd be helpful to point out at, at this stage that Jesus is not saying, look, you Pharisees, for, forget all that business about the law. It doesn't matter how you act or whether you obey God's law. What matters is your heart and how you feel. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. Because we need to understand that the heart, that word heart in first century Israel had a very different meaning to our understanding of that term today. Because for us, the word heart is connected with our feelings. And so when we say, I love you with all my heart, what we're talking about usually is, is emotions. It's the kind of feeling or love that might motivate somebody to buy a, a bunch of roses or a big soft teddy bear on Valentine's Day. That's what we mean. But this wasn't the understanding in Jesus' time. Their use of the word heart was closer to meaning the entire inner being. So, for example, in Proverbs chapter 4, when it says, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it, the author doesn't just mean protect your feelings or guard your emotions. No, heart here means not just our emotions, but, but our personality and our will. It's the very core of who we are. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here. The way you really are, it comes from your heart. It is your heart. And so the list of sins that he describes, the murder and the adultery and the slander and theft, that is not just things that we sometimes do, but we're really good people. No, they, they reflect who we really are. And the message that Jesus gives to the Pharisees is deeply countercultural. It was countercultural back then, and it still is today. Today, there's a huge contrast between what Jesus says and the various different messages that we hear in the world around us. For example, a lot of people believe that the evil in the world ultimately comes from economic inequality. So there are still millions of people in poverty all around the world. And one potential solution is that, well, if, if we just solve that problem, if we ensure that everyone has their basic needs met, uh, they've got enough food and education and health care and so on, then that will solve our problems. Then we'll start to see crime go down. Economic inequality is the big issue. And of course, poverty is certainly, certainly very important. The Bible is very clear that we are to, uh, to provide for those who are less fortunate than us, uh, those in our community who are in need. But imagine for a moment that if tonight I was able to just click my fingers and guarantee that everyone in the world had all of their basic needs met. There'd be no more hunger, no illiteracy, uh, no waiting lists at the hospital. Even in this seemingly perfect world, it wouldn't be long before things started to decline. It wouldn't change the evil that comes from the human heart. We just need to look to Adam and Eve and how they responded in the Garden of Eden, this perfect world, to see that no, there would still be envy and greed and theft and everything else. In fact, the communist regimes throughout the 20th century demonstrate that that attempt to provide total economic equality, it doesn't actually deal with the problem of the human heart. 
And often it can just end in, in more evil, in violent bloodshed. So that's not a good potential solution. But perhaps we can trust in something else. What about science and technology? Surely that's a better hope for, for mankind. But the problem is that we've, we've run that experiment for, well, really the last few centuries. And it's failed miserably. And the 20th century was the most technologically advanced century in, in history by a long, long way. And yet it was also the most bloody and the most violent century in history. Over 100 million people died through war alone. And in fact, if anything, lots of the technological advances that we've seen uh, in our lifetimes, they, they've just increased our ability to do evil. For example, we, we've got the internet, which is fantastic. It allows us to communicate with people halfway across the world. It brings us all kinds of benefits. But we also have computer hackers and online crime and pornography, which has never been more pervasive and a social media culture which just encourages people to abuse one another. Do you see? Technology itself isn't the answer. It's just a tool. It can be used for both good and for evil. And if anything, it's just helped us to, to become more effective at being evil. It just has exposed the evil that's in our hearts. None of these potential solutions will actually fix us. And it seems to me that Jesus is much more realistic about our world and about the cause of evil than we often are. Because try as we might, we, we can't fix ourselves. We can't save either us as individuals or save the world. With the very best efforts, we will never save the world through science or education or technology or anything else. As the pastor Adrian Rogers once said, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And Jesus, like a skillful and wise doctor, he correctly diagnoses the biggest problem that we face as human beings. Because he identifies the source and the roots of the evil that is in us. What he says is that the evil that is in the world is not primarily down to somebody having a really tough background or, or a lack of education. No, Jesus points out that evil comes from our hearts. A few years ago, uh, the Times newspaper sent out uh, an inquiry to a list of, of different authors, and they asked them just one question. They asked them, what is wrong with the world today? What's wrong with the world today? G.K. Chesterton, who was a very famous author and journalist at the time, he responded with this message. Dear sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. And so what he has realized is exactly what Jesus is saying. The problem is not something out there that needs to be solved. But actually, it's in here. It's in every single one of us. Because we're deeply flawed and sinful and fallen people. We're naturally tilted towards our own selfish desires. So Jesus' message is counter-cultural. It goes against the grain of both the ancient worldview and also our own contemporary views of our world. But it's also offensive. This isn't the last time that Jesus is going to offend someone. 
But his disciples come to him and say in verse 12, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Why is it so offensive? Well, it goes completely against the entire basis of the Pharisees' religion. It cuts against their understanding of what makes a person really pure and undefiled before God. I know that if I had been back there uh, at that meeting with the Lord Jesus, I might have thought to myself, well, Jesus, you're, you're entitled to your opinion. You, you know, you can have vigorous debate with these other rabbis. But what you're doing is going against years and years of wise scholarly opinion. That seems a bit risky. You're offending our wise religious teachers. How does Jesus respond? He says, leave them. They're blind guides. They might think that they have all the answers. They might think that they know how to be righteous before God. But Jesus says, in reality, their hearts are far from God. And so this message was offensive back then, but it's still very offensive today. Because what Jesus is saying is that there's nothing that we can do that will fix our hearts. There's nothing externally that we can do to make us right before God. No matter how many good deeds that we do, or, or church meetings that we go to, or money that we give to the poor, it doesn't change the evil thoughts that come from our hearts. All of us are guilty. It's a much easier message to hear, uh, well, we'll do these 12 things, and then you'll be right with God. Then you'll have peace with God. That's an easier message to swallow because then there's something for us to do, isn't there? But the gospel requires that we confess our total inability to rescue ourselves. We surrender all of our control because we need a new heart, not just modified behavior. Not just better education or more technology or more science or economic equality. No, a total heart transformation. Well, finally then, if that's what we need, if our biggest need is a new heart, then how do we get this clean heart? The story here ends on a bit of a, a cliffhanger. Because in verse 20, if you read with me at the end of the passage, Jesus finishes by saying what does and what doesn't defile a person. So what doesn't defile a person is the external things that go into our mouths. Lord Jesus says, that doesn't defile you. But what does defile you is what comes out of your heart. But we're left with a big question. We might know what the problem is, but what's the solution? If our biggest problem is that our hearts lead us astray, then how can we ever be cured? And what we find here is that Jesus diagnoses our biggest problem with wisdom and insight and clarity. But he doesn't just stop there. He's also the only person who can ultimately provide treatment for this problem. And what we need, according to the Bible, is not just a quick fix or a heart bypass, but we need a totally new heart. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27, the Lord speaks to the people of Israel and he says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. 
And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. In the book of Ezekiel, we find that Israel's future in the land as God's covenant people will only take place because of a great act of God's mercy. It's not because they're actually able to keep God's law. The story of the Old Testament is really a story of the people of Israel failing time and time and time again to keep God's law. And so what is needed is mercy, God's mercy to accomplish a total transformation of Israel's heart. What we find when we read the Gospels is that Jesus is the only one who can obtain this new heart for us. He's the one who who removes for us our heart of stone and gives us this heart of flesh. If you read on to the the climax of Matthew's gospel in chapter 27, we're told that Jesus was, was taken outside the camp to Golgotha, to the place of the skull, the place of unclean things, the place of the dead. And there, Jesus, the only one who was clean, he bore our uncleanness and our moral impurity to fulfill the law and to release us who, who could never fulfill God's law. So we are cleansed because Jesus was spit upon. We are cleansed because he was smeared and beaten and bruised and killed. And if we admit our moral uncleanness and impurity before God and we entrust Jesus uh, trust ourselves to Jesus as our Lord and Savior well then we can stand before God completely pure maybe you're here this evening and you've never taken that opportunity you've not accepted that invitation to become clean and to have a, a totally new heart given to you can I tell you that nothing else will fix the problem that you and I both have. There's no external fix, there's no cleaning up of ourselves that we can do on the outside that will make us presentable before God. And so wonderfully, because of Jesus' death and his resurrection, we too are invited to have our hearts of stone taken away from us and to have God's Holy Spirit come and live within us. The Holy Spirit changes our hearts. He enables us to follow God and to follow his decrees. To do what, humanly speaking, is totally impossible. And so what the law of Moses alone could not do, God does. He does it through his spirit within us. Only the sovereign grace of God can do that. And as we surrender day by day to the Holy Spirit, he enables us to walk in line with God's law and with his word. So let's take some time now to just thank God for the provision of his son, the Lord Jesus, who destroys our self-righteousness. He gives us a totally radically new heart, a heart which has been purified, a heart that is filled with the Holy Spirit, enabling us to serve him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this invitation to have our hearts totally transformed. Lord, we confess that we have disobeyed you so often. We confess, Lord, at times when we've tried to justify ourselves instead of relying on your grace. 
We pray, Lord, tonight that we would follow you, that we would walk more closely with you instead of looking to other traditions, instead of trying to to present ourselves clean to you. We thank you, Lord, that you have, uh, by your Son, the Lord Jesus, you have rescued us from our sin, and you, Lord, have presented us clean. We ask now, Lord, that we would turn to praise you and thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.